Further, Lord, we acknowledge that you are so wonderful, and so I pray that as we look today and then the rest of the semester in theological equipping, that even if things that we study might seem familiar, that there would be a new depth to them, that there might be a new beauty to them, there might be words that we know or maybe we don't know, uh, but regardless, I pray that you make us look more like your son because we see your son and you, Father, as infinitely more wonderful. And that by gazing at your beauty, we're transformed. And so help us in this time, help us as we walk through this together to not just see truth, but live in it. Uh, that the gospel wouldn't just be something we believe, it would be a reality that we live in, that the peace that surpasses all understanding because there is a king on the throne who we know and love and who knows and loves us might be a peace that we walk in every day, no matter the chaotic circumstances of our life and all the other many benefits of the gospel, that it would be a reality, not just intellectual understanding. Do those Miraculous things that only you can do, Lord, we pray in your son's wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we are starting. We've been, had two months off from our theological equipping class. If you're coming to this time for the first time or the thousandth time, uh, I think it's helpful to have a reminder of just why do we do this? Is it just service starts at 1030? And so, you know, what else would you do with your free time than study theology like normal people, right? Why do we do this? Well, quite simply, a couple of texts that I want to just hone our, our eyes in on is one, Matthew 28. We'll get there in our sermon series. But it'll be the last sermon we preach in Matthew where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So just notice in, the, in, in Jesus' great commission, as we, as we call it, uh, the means by which disciples are made is through teaching. Through teaching. Through taking all that Jesus commanded, right? A very encapsulating statement and teaching. So disciples are learners. Okay, so we want to devote a lot of our time to taking the truths of the scriptures and teaching them, learning them, receiving them, and obey Jesus' Great Commission, and furthermore, as the church, not just hearing true things, but as we internalize them, as they become part of our lives, as they become precious to us, that we might live together as the church in a way that makes disciples, in a way that builds us up, not just as individuals, but as a church body. A passage you'll hear us refer to often in the context of theological equipping is Ephesians 4. Notice what Paul is saying here. He, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastors, and teachers. Why? Why did he give those people to the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. And he goes on this beautiful uh, image of the church being built up as a house. How? Is it just through hiring pastors who are good teachers? That's part one. If we stop there, we're, we're radically missing the point of what the church is. No, it's the pastors teach the church so that the saints, that the members of the church, you guys actually do the work of gospel ministry. And so you growing as a disciple 
You walking through suffering in a way that is faithful and in a way that honors God. You evangelizing your neighbor and those in, in your, your place of work or where, wherever the Lord has placed you. You falling more in love with the scriptures, learning more of the scriptures should be a result of your brothers and sisters who are sitting in the seats on the aisles with you, discipling you and you discipling them. You see that? We're meant to equip the saints, we are meant to equip the saints, you guys, for the work of ministry. And so that, this is just one of the ways we, we do that, theological equipping class. It's in the title. That's, that's, we're drawing on this passage. And we're not just hitting at your head. We don't just want new doctrine in your mind, although we do want that. We just don't want to stop there. We want that wonderful truths of the scriptures, the doctrine to come into your heart and to flow out into your hands. We want to make whole disciples, okay? Not head-heavy people who are really good at thinking, but really bad at loving people and looking like Jesus. We don't want full hearts, but tiny heads. I'm losing the thread here a little bit. But uh, we don't just want to, you know, love Jesus, but ignore most of what Jesus says, right? That's typically what heart people, that's, that's their error. But we don't just want to love Jesus and be really uh, good at thinking about the truths of Jesus and ignore the world around us, right? We want that to overflow into washing one another's feet and serving the communities that the Lord has put us in. So we want to become and be grown into full disciples of Jesus. That's what, that's what tech is about. Everything that we're doing, whatever the theme of the semester is, that's kind of a central aim that we're hitting at. And so this semester, as uh, we've announced, we're going to study the theological uh, theme, the theological subject of salvation, what's often called soteriology. Uh, and we've titled this Salvation, Life in the Sun. So it's the what, the how, the why of our salvation. But we don't just want to study doctrine for doctrine's sake. One of the things we want to do, one of the things that's absolutely necessary for us to do is connect the truths of God to the person of Jesus, which is why we've titled it Salvation, Life in the Son. A typical way when, when you study soteriology, the study of salvation, what a typical way of studying it is what's called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, where we typically, typically look at election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification, right? We look at the different doctrines, and that's good and true, but when you do that, there's a temptation, at least, to see doctrine, to see a, a truth, justification, or election, as a thing in and of itself, as a thing in and of itself. So we might say things like, we're saved, what, how? Justification by faith. We're saved by the doctrine of justification by faith. And the answer to that is not really. Not really. You're not saved by a truth. You're saved by the God who justifies you. You see the subtle difference there. Now, you might be like, okay, in that big time splitting hairs, I hope, I hope by the end of today, you'll see No. If we treat doctrine as just a, an end in and of themselves, truths that we hold on to, but disconnected from the person of Jesus, disconnected from the God who is actually saving you, that has some really bad unintended consequences. Uh, my favorite professor, Donald Fairburn, we'll quote him a lot today, said, doctrine are statements designed to point us to God. They're not meant to be objects of faith in and of themselves. And so what we're going to do, how we're going to approach this 
subject of salvation is, again, connecting doctrines to the person of Jesus. So we're starting today with the Trinity, the triune God of our salvation. When we look at sin, we'll look at sin, how sin is primarily life apart from God, life separated from God. We'll see how the, the promises and covenants of God are, are meant to bring us back to the garden, bring us back into relationship with him. We'll take time to look at the life of the Son who's coming to accomplish the salvation for us. We'll look at the incarnation. We'll look at his obedience to the Father. We'll look at atonement, his accomplishing salvation. And then when we get to what's typically the, the order of salvation, we'll highlight how all of those wonderful truths are flowing from the life of Jesus, how we're united to the Son and therefore declared righteous because we've been united to the righteous one. Okay, so we want to make sure every truth that we believe is connected to the God in whom we belong to because there is a radical difference between loving truth and loving the person who says, I am the truth. There is a radical difference between loving abstract truth and loving Jesus who is the truth. Knowing about versus knowing are two radically different things. Alan Chappell, who's a New Testament professor in Australia, says this, knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing him. I can accept the truth of propositions about God without knowing the God of whom they speak. That is the faith of demons. So James says, demons have perfect theology. They know the truths. They just hate it with all their might. Those truths aren't precious to them. They don't know the God in whom the truths speak. That is the faith of demons. Biblical faith, by contrast, is not only believing that, it is also believing in. It is more than a response to truth. It is engaging with a person. Christians are not captivated by a system of ideas in love with a body of doctrine. Christian spirituality is relational. The convictions that are precious to us matter precisely because they are the means by which we know and love the person of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're after this semester. That's what we're after this semester. Jonathan Edwards would say there's two ways to know honey. You can study it. You can probe it. You can understand all of its faculties, how it works, or you could taste it. And the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, who find their life in him, who find their salvation in him. So we want to be after both. We want to understand truth. There are confusing things that we ought to labor to understand, that we ought to use our minds to understand, but we dare not stop there. We want our intellectual understanding, our understanding of theology to fuel our worship of the God that we're looking at, the God that we're studying, if you will. We want our understanding to lead us to awe and wonder. There's a Psalm 8, you, you guys hear me talk about it a lot, it's just for whatever reason the Lord has profoundly impacted me by Psalm 8 and it's a psalm where David walks outside and he looks up at nighttime and he sees stars, he sees the moon. And he's beginning to understand, my God is so big. God is huge. He hung all these stars. He knows each of them by name. And he begins to understand he is really small. 
He's understanding, his, his view of God is expanding. He's, he's important. He holds the universe up. And then rather than saying, okay, good, I know more facts about God, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him, but you do? See, his understanding leads to awe. It leads to wonder. It leads to worship. That's what we're after in theological equipping. That's what we're after this semester as we look at salvation. And then ultimately, our third kind of goal is to be transformed. We are not a people who pridefully rock up and say, I'm good, I need no doctor. That is not Christianity. That's the type of disgusting self-righteousness that Jesus rejects. We've seen it in Matthew over and over and over and over and over again. We are a people, whether they've been Christian for a day or Christian as long as we can remember, who says, I am poor in spirit. I need the heavenly doctor to heal me. I need my idol factory of a heart to be healed. I need the sin that clings so closely to be uprooted by a heavenly hand. And I need the seeds of the Spirit sown into my heart that this, he might bear fruit. That I might be patient and I might love others like Jesus and I might look more like Jesus. This is not a fun exercise just to kill time until we can worship together at 1030. This is so that we might look more like Jesus. We might be transformed to look more like the precious King in all of his beauty, so that we might delight in him, we might love one another more like him, and we might realize that the world must hear about him. See that? Okay, so that's a long intro, but again, I wanted to, at the beginning of the semester, I wanted to set our eyes rightly on where we're going and why we're going there, lest we make the mistake of stumbling just into the faith of demons. I understand justification better. Great, if that's where we stop. Oh, we've stopped so short of where God would have us go. So let's dive into this semester with the Trinity. Now, you may be, you, you hopefully you picked up a, a syllabi of where we're going this semester on the way in. And looking at it, I wonder how many of you are like, oh, salvation, I love it, right? No hell, that's awesome. Heaven, awesome. Justification, can't wait. I love the Reformation. And then you panned, what are we learning today? Trinity. And you're like, eh, okay. I mean, I guess we could talk about that first. But all of your excitement may begin to vanish. Because let's be honest, the Trinity, typically when we talk about the Trinity, anxiety floods into our heart. Confusion at best floods into our heart. Fear of saying the wrong thing and becoming heretics floods into our heart. So why would we start a semester on salvation with the Trinity? It may seem strange. And what I want to suggest to you, and hopefully you'll see it by the end of today, that if we don't start here, if we don't start with our triune God of salvation, we will radically misunderstand salvation and rob ourselves of immeasurable joy. We have to start with the triune God. What do I mean? Let's start with two unintentional mistakes. When we talk about salvation, the theology of salvation in particular, not our walk with the Lord, but when we're doing this, the study of salvation, I think there are two mistakes we unintentionally make. The first you see there is we typically separate and keep separate the study of God 
in the study of our salvation. Typically, if you just pick up any systematic theology book, we have bibliology, or the study of the scriptures, then theology proper, the study of God, then something like the study of man, uh, the study of sin, the study of Jesus, the study of the spirit. Then we get to the study of salvation. Okay, they're, they're very, very separate, and we keep them separate in our minds. And a negative thing that kind of results from that is when we finally get to salvation, and we talk about salvation, typically we talk about it as just our status. We're in the state of wrath or we're in the state of grace. We've been forgiven or even adoption tragically is just kind of talked about like the paperwork gets filled out. State of adoption. Doctrine, like we talked about earlier, becomes an end in and of itself. We, we say things like, I'm saved by the doctrine of justification by faith. Notice God is nowhere in that statement. Salvation and God are very disconnected in our mind. We view salvation, especially on a popular level, as God's stuff. I'm saved. What does that mean? I'm going to heaven where there's streets of gold and mansions and eternal football. At least that's what I sang about as a kid, right? A big, big yard. We can play football, touchdown, right? Uh, maybe if you guys didn't grow up here, that's the kind of stuff we sang. Uh, or salvation is the absence of God's bad stuff. The absence of wrath. I'm not going to hell, praise the Lord. Right? Salvation is God's stuff. We've got these two very separate. And then we, we kind of are left with a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? very moralistic Christianity. The Christian life, when salvation is God's stuff, one of our main concerns is, if I do X, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Am I going to get unsaved? Am I going to go to the bad place and have the absence of the good stuff? Right? Because our focus is God's stuff. We are very good, is another result, we're very good about talking about what we're saved from and very, very bad at talking about what we're saved for. What do you save from hell? Wrath. We can rattle that off. What do you save for? Okay, you're forgiven. Yes, we're forgiven. We're good at saying that. Why? So that we don't go to hell. Okay. Why? So that we can go to heaven. Why? So that we can live forever. Right? We, we only know the, the stuff answers. We only know what we're saved from. We're not very good at talking about what we're saved for. Again, notice how absent God is in all of those answers. All those answers are right, but notice what's glaringly absent. The God that we've separated from our study of salvation. So that's, that's big mistake number one. And I think worse, a thing that compounds that mistake is, or compounds the problem would be mistake number two, which is how we typically talk about the Trinity, Okay, how we typically talk about the Trinity. Now, this is not a gotcha question. Don't freak out. What pops into your mind when I say God? You can answer. Power, okay, power. Father. Anything? Eternal. What else? Beginning, connected to eternal, yeah. What else? Holy, that's right. What else? Creator, what else? Love, I'm assuming I'm hearing you all rightly. One more. Son. Carl. Okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> You're good. So, 
Notice what the majority of these are. I'm very proud of the, these two. Carl's on staff. He knew what it was. He's got the notes. Um, okay, so notice the primary. Again, none of these are wrong. This is all true. I'm very pro God is holy and us loving and believing that. Okay, so don't misunderstand me. We're, our primary instinct when we say God is attributes, what God is like, the what of God, if you will. We rarely, I was very, I'm very proud that that was the second thing said. We rarely say Father. We rarely say Father. We're very good at, whole, and again, that's typically how we study. Doctrine of God, we just list the stuff of what God is like. We rarely say the Father who eternally has a Son, who eternally has a Spirit, who are also God. Okay, next one. I'll use a different color. When I say the word, Carl, you can't answer. When I say the word Trinity, be honest, what pops into your mind? Egg. Egg? Oh, man. Okay, yeah. Egg? <laughs> I'll explain what Josh means. That you, so. Okay. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's HS, Holy Spirit. Hard to understand. Yeah, confusion. Okay, what else? Apple. More analogies. Four leaf clover. My one-year-old is uh, four. He's about to start school next year. I won't say which school, but we were touring a school, and the principal was taking us through. It's a Christian school. And right at the end, we're about to leave the tour, and he goes, yeah, you know, we have a Bible class, and I was teaching the Trinity the other day to the kids. You know, it's just kind of like Kool-Aid. You got the sugar, you got the water, you got the dye. And Claudia goes, so close. All right, X that school off the list, right? Uh, okay, so notice what we typically do. Again, love the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is actually the pretty rare answer. If you say Trinity, what pops into your head typically is bad analogies. Don't do this. Josh, Josh doesn't do this. He knew what he's doing. Egg. God, the Trinity is like a shell. You know, egg's got three parts, but it's one. That's partialism and a heresy. So is apple. So is any one of those things. Don't do that, okay, ever. Four-leaf clovers, Kool-Aid, uh, all that stuff, right? That You're dividing God into a third of God, okay? So don't do that. Uh, confusion, honest. I mean, you have an uh, infinite God, a, a, a mysterious God. That's a good, true answer. Uh, all these are true except these two. Don't do that. But we rarely, rarely, rarely ever say the Father who has his eternal Son and who has an eternal Spirit who are also God. We typically do what we're taught to do, which is to say there's one God and three persons, and each person is fully God. And then we stop talking because we're terrified to be a heretic. And that's the Trinity we're taught. And move on and then get to the good stuff of salvation. And as uh, Dr. Fairburn used to say to us in class, notice when you do that, one God, three persons, each person fully God. Again, all true statements. When you do that, you have not said one thing about who God is. All you've done is a divine math problem. You've justified oneness or justified the juxtaposition of oneness and threeness, as he liked to say, and then move on quickly because you don't want to say too much about God, otherwise you might mess up and be a heretic, right? And so the results of that, compounding with separating God and salvation, is God is very tragically abstract, very, very, very 
abstract and very, very, very impersonal. If you were to ask me about Claudie, my wife, tell me about Claudie, and I said, tall, Norwegian, beautiful, mom, right? You would probably look at me and be like, do you know this person? You're just giving me facts. Notice what I'm not saying. My wife, the love of my life, and describing how she is, right? I'm just giving you facts. Now, with a person, we would say, that's ridiculous, right? Do you even know your own wife? With God, we're fine doing that. List the facts and move on. And we haven't said anything about the God of our salvation. So we not only separate God and salvation, we now have a God that is very impersonal and very, very abstract. And so in ministry, I hear things like, what does the Trinity have to do with my marriage? And what they're reacting to is the divine math problem. Cool, facts about God. What does that have to do with all the actual problems I'm dealing with in real life? That's what they've been discipled into. God has nothing to do with the problems that you're facing. And I'm sympathetic because they've been taught God's a math problem and everything else is separate from him. Now, in those situations, one of the things I typically go to 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 get at that answer is talk about God the way the Bible does, which is the solution, I believe, to this problem. We'll get to that in a second. But the result of both these mistakes, we typically uh, have a gospel that we believe and maybe that we proclaim that goes something like this. I'll use kind of a, a summary version of the, of the gospel. We have God who's a divine boss, uh, who's perfect, and he demands perfection. And you're his employee, and you've failed him. You're not perfect, so you haven't measured up, and you might have even cheated a little bit. You might have gone your own kind of way, disobeyed his orders, and so you deserve to be fired. Rightly so. Uh, but thankfully, uh, uh, another employee named Jesus comes along, and he makes up for your mistake uh, and, and covers for you, and so you can be forgiven. You don't have to lose your job. You don't have to be punished. You can go home happy at the end of the day, right? That's, that's how we often talk about what is the gospel. Holy God, we're sinners, saved by Jesus, forgiven, then we stop talking. Now, again, there's, that's true. There's absolute elements of the good news in that. But what's missing? Or, or what, what are the problems in that gospel presentation? Transactional, not relational, exactly. What is salvation in that gospel presentation? Yeah, the avoidance of punishment, the avoidance of punishment. Notice there's no joy, there's only relief. I'm not going to get in trouble. And most of all, you don't know the boss. You can replace the boss with a divine rule book and it doesn't change the story one bit. That's the result of seeing God very separate from salvation and seeing God as abstract and impersonal. Now, the good news for us is there is a solution to both of these unintentional problems, and it is how the scriptures talk about the God of your salvation, the triune God of your salvation. I want to suggest to you, and I want to show you this morning, the Bible talks about God and talks about your salvation radically different than we tend to. Radically different than we tend to. You will not find an angry divine boss. You will not find a divine math problem in the scriptures. Rather, we will find the Father who has eternally been pouring out his love 
on the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit, a God who in his very essence is relational. The persons of the Trinity loving one another, glorifying one another, and we'll find a salvation that is not just the avoidance of bad things or even getting good things, but a salvation that is ultimately about getting God, getting our triune God, the crescendo of the scriptures in Revelation 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We'll see in the scriptures, salvation and God are not separate. Rather, they're actually two sides of the same coin. In fact, it might be more accurate to say salvation is a who, not a what. The solution is right in front of us, studying the scriptures. You, your view of God, the reason why we need to start here, your view of God will affect your view of everything else. If we start with a divine angry boss, all we have is forgiveness, and all we have is trying to serve him better, and that's typically why we see so much moralism in our day. That's, that is where we start a lot of the time. But if you start with a God who is for all eternity loving his son and has sent his son for you, all of a sudden being brought in and united to that son makes your salvation radically different. Do you see that? So we're starting with the Trinity to be set on the right path. Charles Spurgeon says, I believe to believe and love the Trinity is to possess the key to theology. He doesn't just mean the most important part of theology. He means the key to understanding theology. So that's what we want to do today. I just simply want to look at how does the Bible undo those two unintentional, again, people aren't wicked in doing that. They're just trying to understand God. How does the Bible undo those unintentional mistakes we typically make? So let's first look at the life of the Trinity. Okay, you guys have been getting my questions right. You're supposed to get these wrong so that I can give you the right answers. And I'm like, I don't want to ask them these questions. There's no tension to my teaching then. I'll ask you anyway. Okay, uh, to get at this problem, that's a joke. You can say the right answer. Uh, to get at this problem, let me ask you a question. What was God doing before the first page in your Bible? What was God doing before the beginning before Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was he doing before that? If he is eternal, which he is. Spending eternity with his son. Spending eternity with his son. You might think, that's a good answer. Clearly, that's the answer Jared was looking for. Does the Bible tell us, or do we just have to kind of deduce that? If you look in your notes, you know, I've got a scripture there. So you're like, yes, the Bible tells us. Okay, let's look again. When Jesus comes down, he's not just doing the salvation stuff. He's also revealing the Father over and over and over and over and over again. We see no one knows the Father except the Son and who the Son chooses to reveal him to. So look at Jesus kind of giving us a window into the life of the Trinity in John 17. This is just about when he's about to go to the cross and die. He says this to his disciples, or actually says this in a prayer to the Father. We get a whole chapter of seeing the Son pray to the Father. Jesus says this, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice he's not talking about Philippians 2. He's not saying, I used to be on my heavenly throne, but I took on flesh and came down. He's not talking about the incarnation. He's talking about pre-Genesis 1, glory with the Father. 
Verse 24, Father, I desire that they, the disciples, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. Typically, you guys are just great students. Typically, when we ask that question, you get a philosophical answer. What was God doing before Genesis 1-1? Being, right? He's an he's eternal being, so he was just there, right? Is that what Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us? No, for all eternity, you have the Father pouring out the ocean of his love on the Son, glorifying the Son, and the Son eternally loving the Father and glorifying the Father in the fellowship of the Spirit. That's what's happening before let there be light. That's who God is. You see how that's already a radically different picture than divine angry boss who you've disobeyed. Perfect, holy, yes and amen. But if you don't see the essence of who he is, Eternally loving his son, you're going to miss eternally loving as well, glorifying the son. So here's, here's a way to maybe get at this. We typically talk about God's fatherhood as a nice analogy. Because we start with attributes and he's holy and kind of up there and abstract, we got to throw nice analogies on him so that we can understand him. He's like a dad. You're all dads or moms. You like your kids. That's how God feels towards you. It's an analogy. It's not how the scriptures present God's fatherhood. That's not how most of the early church who are actually having the Trinitarian debates in the fourth century talk about God's fatherhood. In fact, Athanasius, when he was debating uh, Arius, the, the kind of original heretic in the fourth century who denied the son was eternal. So he's saying the son is kind of the first great created being. That's what Arius taught us. And Athanasius, to kind of get at that, said, God being a father is more fundamental to who he is than even God being creator. Because there's a moment where he creates. There's never been a moment where he started loving the son because he's been eternally loving his eternal son. It's not a nice analogy. It's an archetype. God as father eternally loving his son. God in his very essence is personal, relational in his very self. The father loving the son in the fellowship of the spirit. Here we see, there's a quote there from Michael Reeves talking about this, this kind of life of the Trinity. Indeed, the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, the joy behind all joy. He would say in another place, the reason we can say God is love is because God has been eternally loving his son. We don't just mean God is a floating ball of love or a floating ball of goodness. Your triune God has been eternally loving his son, the father and his son, and the fellowship of the spirit. Therefore, when he creates you and when he redeems you, he can draw you into something that is love. He can't just pardon you. Allah, a non-triune God of any other religion, all you can be is a forgiven servant. You actually have the, the divine angry boss in, in Islam. And if he should pardon you, by the way, there's no word for salvation in Islam. The closest thing you get is success because Allah does not care about converting you. He cares about you submitting because Allah is not an eternal father who's been eternally loving his son. There's big differences here. So you might ask another question. Uh, why did God create the world? 
And I'll just answer this one for you. Why did God create the world? We might say, you know, because for people to worship him, right? Or, or people to serve him or something like that. Now notice the problems with that is if God created the world because he needed anything, he's all of a sudden very weak and maybe even insecure. If God has to create because he needs something, that means there's a, a significant lack in God, but not with our triune God of the Bible. You have the Father who's been perfectly glorified, perfectly loved by the Son who has no lack. And so now we can say the creation of everything is an overflow of grace and an overflow of love, almost as if the divine love within our triune God is so good it must be shared. And now all of a sudden, this God and his creatures doesn't just have a divine and subject relationship, although, of course, that exists where his servants, you can have a fatherly relationship. Athanasius again said, what profit would there be for those who were made if they didn't know their own maker, if they didn't have fellowship with their own maker? So this is how the scriptures unfold the God of the Bible. This is what Jesus comes here declaring for all eternity. My father has been loving me and he sent me here for you. To forgive you, yes. But what else? That's part two. That's part two of what we're going to look at. So the triune God of the Bible, we see here the Father eternally loving his Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. That's how the Scriptures unfold God and his Son and his Spirit. That's problem one, our abstract view of God. Now it's honing on problem two, separating God and salvation. Does our triune God our Father, the Son, the Spirit, influence how we see salvation. Again, Jesus is going to help us out here. Matthew 11, we preached this a few months ago. No one has known the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son. No one in all of creation knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is making this statement. This is right before, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This crazy statement of, I know the Father, and in fact, no one else does. And if I choose, I can reveal the wonderful, glorious, eternal Father to you. I've got those keys. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We, we major on the second part of that passage, but Jesus said, just said something incredible in the first, as if the way in which you get rest is that revelation and knowing of the Father. Okay, says stuff like that, says things like in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What would you expect him to say? No one has salvation except through me. No one goes to heaven except through me. No one has eternal life except through me. That's how we typically talk. You, there's, there's no salvation outside of Jesus, true. You can't go to heaven outside of Jesus Right? There's no such thing as coexist. Right, All roads don't lead to Rome. Only go to heaven through Jesus. The only way to have eternal life is through Jesus. That's how we talk. Is that how Jesus talks? What is salvation? What is the salvation that Jesus is saying? That thing that you should want more than anything else that I'm the only door to, what is it? Is it heaven? Is it not hell? Is it eternal life? It's the Father. It's the Father. What is Jesus presenting to us? The way to the Father, the truth to get to the Father, the life that is in the Father. So salvation in Jesus' view is something very different, something that we often 
don't major on because we've done the divine math problem and we've moved on. I don't want to reopen that can of worms. I might say something bad. I might do the apple egg thing. But Jesus is like, no, no, no. The salvation you're being brought into is life with the Father, life with the Son. Let's look at John 17 as this kind of window into our salvation again. This is Jesus praying to the Father. We get little snippets about Jesus getting away to pray. We see quick prayers. John 17 gives us a whole chapter of the Son praying to the Father. And first thing I want you to see is he's praying for you and me. He says explicitly, I'm not just praying for the 12. I'm praying for those who will believe through their message. That's you if you're a Christian. This is Jesus' words for you. John Knox, the famous reformer of Scotland, had his wife read him John 17 on his deathbed. Uh, Tim Keller, I heard, preached through John 17 one time, and he said a pretty profound statement, if the content of these verses does not equip you to face any challenge in life and death itself, I'm not sure what will. So what does Jesus say in John 17 about our salvation? He, he again, you see there, he, he gives that picture we've already looked at. What was Jesus, what was God doing before Genesis 1-1, the Father eternally loving his Son, glorifying his Son, vice versa. And then he says this in John 17:3. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Again, what would you expect him to say? This is eternal life. Heaven, or something you know, more generic. Glory, wonder, salvation from hell. What does he say? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, knowing in the scriptures is not knowing about. It's an intimate fellowship. It's an intimate relationship. Again, knowing Claudia is not just tall and Norwegian. It's sharing my life with her. See the difference between those two. That's what Jesus is unpacking here. This is eternal life, personal, experiential fellowship with the living God and his son whom he, who he sent. That's what Jesus is pointing to, this fellowship with God, the who of our salvation. Now, if that wasn't good enough, it gets even more astounding in verse 22. It's one thing to know about the king. It's quite another thing to be invited to the king's table, to have a relationship with the king, to be his friend. Jesus even goes beyond that with something quite unthinkable in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, he's praying to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you, Father, loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26 I made the, known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is one of those scriptures that to comment on just feels like I'm dirtying it up because it's so wonderful. 
what Jesus just said. First of all, notice he said that the world may know that you sent me. I pray that the world may know that you sent me. He's not just saying, I want people to believe that, you know, the fact that you sent me, that, that's very key to the gospel. That's the idea that you can't save yourself. You need someone to come save you. The Father is the one actually doing that. We have this weird tendency to think like nice Jesus, but grumpy Father. And it's actually Jesus pointing here, the Father's intent. Jesus is obeying the Father to come after you. But even more, what Jesus says in verse 23, that the world may know that you've sent me and that you've loved them even as you have loved me. What Jesus is saying is that the very love that the Father has poured out on the Son for all eternity, pre-Genesis 1, the delight and the joy that the Father has in the Son when he rips open the clouds and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When you come to the Son and you're united to the Son by the Spirit, that same love is poured out on you so that now the Father looks at you and says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. The only eyes that matter, the only acceptance that matters in the eternal ocean of the Father's love is what you are saved into, the Father-Son fellowship. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Jesus' desire that he's praying to the Father for, I want them to know this, Father, that you love them with the same love, quantity and quality, even as you loved me, and that the love that you've poured out on me might be in them and I in them. It is one thing to know about the king. It's another thing to be invited to the king's table. It is quite another thing to be adopted into the king's family as a beloved child. Not just, I like you because I'm good and it's who I am. Rather, the father who's eternally loved the son has brought you in, united to his son as a child. Alan Chapel commenting on this verse, says this. I think this is an understatement. I love this quote, but I think it's a radical understatement, (laughs) the way he phrases it. He's an Aussie. They're laid back. This tells us, he's commenting on John 17, this tells us that God binds us to himself in a deep personal relationship. This relationship is like those internal to him. Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, so the Son is in us and we are in God, nothing less then the love the Father has for the Son is in us, and the glory the Father gave the Son has been given to us. It is, it is as though the inner life of the triune God is so rich that it spills over into his relationship with us. We are caught up in, in the most basic and fundamental of all realities, the relationship that make God who he is, to have a part in something so good and so rich and so real is an immense privilege. There's the understatement. It's a great privilege. You see what Jesus is saying is your salvation. Forgiveness, yes. Absence of wrath, absolutely. Heaven, yes. He is preparing a place for you. He tells us that. That's what we're saved from. What are we saved for? Him. Fellowship with him. Communion with him. Knowing him and his 
wonderful son. What does he say to Mary? He goes to the cross after John 17. We looked at this passage a few Easter's ago. He goes to the cross, he dies, and he's raised again, and he meets Mary. And he says this in John 20, 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. It's the first time in John that the Father's referred to as your Father because he's just one for us, salvation. God as our Father. We see it in Paul in Galatians 4. We see it in 1 John. That we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. We see it in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. How do we know that God is loving? What kind of love has he given to us that we would be called children of God? And so we are. And so I'm, I'm tempted to echo Keller here. If that doesn't change your day or your life or your plans or your hopes, or your affections, or how you spend your money, or how you invest your time, I don't know what will. There is nothing more glorious. There is no more wonderful reality that you have been invited into. This is your salvation. Knowing the living God, being united to his beautiful son in the fellowship of the Spirit, not just when we die, now. He doesn't say, Mary, when you die, he'll be your father. Now, by faith, you have this communion with God. Now, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, we're, we're transformed, how? By beholding the beauty of our God, but with the eyes of faith, we engage with him in fellowship and communion now. We know him now. Of course, there will be a day a wonderful day where our faith is turned to sight and we see him for all eternity, but you can see him in a sense now. This is your salvation. If we don't start here, justification will be misunderstood or it will be truncated. Your sanctification will become do's and don'ts. Your glorification will be a weird, I guess weird, sinless now in the future. You'll truncate every wonderful reality of salvation. But when you see this as the core of who our God is, and who our salvation is. Now, yes, he's a judge who bangs the gavel and says, justified. But he's also a judge who we leap over the table and go home with as a loving father. You're united to his son and brought into this wonderful relationship. I won't read it for the sake of time, but that quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a 20th century preacher, says, uh, essentially... All of our Christian problems come from not believing this. Uh, any fear you have comes from not believing this. Any trial you have where you're doubting God's goodness comes from not believing this. If we just grasp this, all of our problems will go away, which would mean we're perfect, right? And here's the good news for you. If you're just feeling deficient, feeling like, I, I just, yeah, I, I just, I'm used to the angry boss gospel. Here's the good news for you. Jesus is the one praying this. Jesus is the one asking the Father that you might have your eyes open to this. Jesus is the one who right now is at the right hand of the Father. And what does Hebrews tell us he's doing? Interceding for you. It is not as if I have a wonderful reality that I can't grasp. Oh God, pay attention to me and, and let me grasp this. The Son, Jesus, is right now, this very moment, praying 
for you that you would be brought in and know the God of your salvation and might have this joy that the world can't understand and might have a peace that does surpass all understanding and might have, as Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, you might know it. You might live it. But again, this might not be just a doctrine we believe, but a reality that we live in. I have a Father who loves me with a love unthinkable because I've been united to His Son and brought into fellowship with Him. So you see, if this is the salvation that Jesus brings, fellowship with him, fellowship with his Father and the Spirit, as we see in John 14, John 17, Matthew 11. You can't just become a Christian and then go about your day. This is actually what would heal the Bible Belt. There is no such thing as accepting Jesus and continuing your pursuit of the American dream because that's not what the salvation of the Scriptures is. It's a deep and abiding relationship with the living God. So if that's not what you're living in, I don't, I don't know if you've understood the gospel. J.I. Packer, I have a quote there, would say, if you want to understand how, how well someone understood Christianity, see how much they make of being an adopted child of God. If it's the fuel of their life, they've understood the gospel. If not, they, they may have had some misunderstandings here. So this will be the core. This is where we start. How you see God affects everything else. And so we want to see God rightly as we talk about the wondrous salvation we have in him. This is the triune God of your salvation. And so you'll see as we move forward, every, every, every doctrine we, we cover flows from this. Okay, I'll close with a story. Uh, Adoniram Judson, who was a, a missionary to Burma in, in the 19th century, uh, great biography of his life is On the Golden Shore. Lee's favorite book? Okay, favorite missionary biography, not favorite book, because that's the Bible, we get it, okay. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, Adam Justin goes to Burma where there's, there's almost 0% Christians, and so he's, he's evangelizing, and there's a, a man that comes to him over and over again named uh, Meng Shui Nong, we'll call him Meng, uh, who is, is brilliant, and he wants to debate Adnarm Judson, so he'll show up in a chapter and debate him and then leave, and then he comes back again, and he's, he's very curious, understanding the things of God, but then Adnarm Judson doesn't want shallow, weak converts, so he'll, he'll challenge him when he says, I think I've accepted God, and he'll say, what does that mean? And he'll press him, and there's this scene kind of towards the end of the book where Mang shows up again and says, I think I have security, I think I have assurance of eternal life, and Adnarm Judson asks him, why do you think that? And he says, well, because I love Jesus. And Adam Judson says, do you really love him? And Meng says, anyone who truly knows him cannot help but loving him. Anyone who truly knows him cannot help but loving him. He is too glorious and he is too wonderful. And so our prayer for this semester is that we will see Jesus and the salvation that is in him in such a way that you would be overwhelmed with his goodness. And in a way, as if it is getting ripped from your hands, all the fleeting pleasures of this world pale in comparison to how wonderful and how beautiful he is. Let me pray, and then we've we'll we got some time for, for questions. Father, this is who you are. 
this is the salvation you've given us in your son. I pray that your spirits would open our eyes to it. Your spirit is the one who unites us to the son. Your, your spirit is the one who sanctifies us and rips away all the idols that churn up in our hearts. And I pray that as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, you would quite simply by your spirit open our eyes to the wonderful inheritance we have in your son that we might see him, know him, and love him more. I pray in his name. Amen.